Hey everyone, welcome back to Luminous Arts. If this is your first time tuning in, this is a conversational series where I sit down with new media artists from across the spectrum with the goal of giving public voice to the people behind the most amazing examples of visual and interactive art. In this industry, it's really common to see something that inspires you on Instagram or on a blog. Find the name of an artist or a crew responsible and then have them remain a complete mystery. Who are the people who make these installations come to life? Where are they from? What do they love about the work that they do? And what drives them crazy? These are the questions that I want to answer as I speak with some of the community's most prolific names. In this episode, I sit down with Christopher Shart, creator of the Firmament LED installation and a prominent light artist. He spent much of his artistic career making pieces for display at the Burning Man Arts Festival, and we ended up spending much of this episode discussing the intricacies of making light art installations for that venue. Our discussion moves from the politics of creating art in the playa, how he fits into the overall Burning Man scene, and where we see Burning Man art headed in the future. It was an interesting conversation with a true veteran, and we had a lot of fun drinking beer and talking about our respective experiences. I hope you enjoy. And I'm going to start out by introducing you, Christopher Shart, um, maker of LED Labs and the Firmament Light Installation out on the playa. Did I say it right? Firmament? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of what you're known best for, right? Firmament and, and now Paraluna. Paraluna. Yeah. The, the, I, I, my, my shtick seems to have become uh, making immersive uh, LED environments with classical music. That's kind of the thing that I've fallen into and that I'm, I'm known for. Because not only do I do that with these large pieces that have been seen at Burning Man and other festivals, but the uh, piece that I had in the Smithsonian for the No Spectators, The Art of Burning Man show was also did the same thing, just on a much smaller scale. That was a piece called Nova. Sure. Well, to rewind a little bit, you're, you're a, an LED light artist. That's kind of like the, mm-hmm. the, the category you would fall into. And um, you've been doing this for a while, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I mean... I was I, looking at your website, and it's like there's stuff dating back to 2002. Yeah, I wouldn't just say that I was an LED artist back then. In fact, you know, and the LED technology that existed back then did not make it easy. Um, I like to say, the cute thing I like to say is that I've transitioned from being a programmer who does art for fun to being an artist who does programming for fun. And that's really the truth. An awful lot of times the programming is the most fun part of what I do. Yeah. As far as Burning Man art goes, I yeah, I've been doing it since the year 2000. Going to Burning Man or making art for making Burning Man? Making art for Burning Man. I've been going to Burning Man since 98 and making, you know, fairly large-scale pieces since 2000. And they have involved motors and engines and propane and EL wire and, you know, big aluminum towers and all kinds of things. As but one does. As, as one, one does, does for the playa. Yeah, well, 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 one's first project is always the one that you think is like, so big, oh my God, this thing's 12 feet tall, and you take it out to the playa. It's tiny. Right. It's just a postage stamp. So my second big piece for Burning Man was a, well, actually an art car, but my third piece was a uh, um, was was called Yantra, which was a forty foot tall tower, and that was big. That that actually rocked. And in fact, I have photographs of um, that year, which was two thousand three, that um, shows that after the the man and the tower had burned, Yantra was the tallest thing out there. I was very happy. I'm very happy about that. Indeed. <laughs> get that that status marker mm-hmm. in there somehow these days no way you know these days everything is so damn big 
but you'd have to really, you know, you'd have to work really hard to be the tallest. Thing. Well, it's funny, man, because you see, you see installations every year that are clearly trying to be like the biggest thing at Burning Man, and I almost you mean, you, you mean like aviation wise? <laughs> or I mean, that is a that is a prime example, yes. But I think in general, it's uh, you know, it's like a marker. You know, you always have like a bunch of people going out there trying to be you know, the most extravagant or like the biggest party, you know, like the biggest rager. You've got, uh, you know, the two, the two end, the ends of the, the Esplanade and they're just uh, traditionally been like the biggest thing. But now you go around and the entire, the entire Esplanade and that entire 10 o'clock side is just, it's like a mega rave. Like I go, last year I was biking between the you, you two mean tips. Going, you mean going down the 10 o'clock road, right? Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, well, that, I mean, that's, that's by design. I mean, ever since, say, 2002, mm. they put all of the major sound camps on the 2 o'clock road and on the 10 o'clock road with the instruction, face your speakers out, motherfucker. Yeah. You know, it's just like, <laughs> you know, don't face them into the city. Sure. And that, that actually, and that worked most of the time. Because the sound systems right. have become obscenely large. Right, but They're now, but... so big. Well, you know, maybe I don't spend enough time on 10 and 2, but in my opinion, the uh, the... The, the center of cachet has moved from those large sound camps to vehicles. Sure. I mean, everyone and their brother, as you should know, <laughs> wants to make a large, you know, sound vehicle. And, uh, you know, and, and, and people don't seem to really care about those camps anymore. I mean, well, maybe I, they do. I, I don't think know. That, I think that what's happened is the camps are almost like, they're almost like fortresses of sound, mm -hmm. right? And if you're, if you're kind of, uh, you know, just like, like a, I don't even know how to say this nicely, but like a Coachella style, you know, party person, kind of like a normie who like goes out to the playa and they're like, oh yeah, you know, opulent temple is going to be crazy tonight or like whatever, you know, the, you know, the root society's going off. They've got Carl Cox playing or like whatever, whoever it is. Um, those are kind of like the massive parties that just are massive parties all week long. And then the art cars are kind of their own thing. It's its own art form at this point where it's uh, it's it's just a different canvas to, to paint on. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you've got your, your mega your mega fortresses, you know, of sound being the, the big camps on the Esplanade on the 10 o'clock road. Um, and then you've got your deep art installation pieces, which are, uh, you know, pieces that are purely art art pieces. They're there for for art's sake and then you've got vehicles which are um it's another it's another canvas you know to right. excuse me to uh to produce art that is roadworthy on the playa is uh and that's why I'm attracted to it. It's a technical challenge. Right. And then, and, and I think it, it, it bears mentioning that, you know, art cars have been around for decades, you know, uh, and, and, and Burning Man, they started getting big in the year 2002. That was before that, I even went to Burning yeah, Man. Yeah, Burning Man in 2002, the theme was the floating world. And a couple of guys got the idea to make a really large thing for the floating world. So one group of people made Contessa, La Contessa, the, yeah. the great big galleon. That was my favorite and, art car when and, I first and, went to Burning Man. And, uh, um, and, then the, and then another guy, Tom Kennedy, got the idea of doing the big whale, the big white whale. Guess how many sound systems were involved in both of those? I don't know. Zero. Yeah, right? sure. There was nothing to do with sound. It was, in fact, a piece of art. Well, don't you think that's because 
art cars started as art pieces and they yeah, kind well, of became no, I'm, well i'm saying that they i'm saying that you know, maybe I'm betraying my prejudice, but I'm actually saying that's kind of the way it should be. You know, they should be pieces of art. They shouldn't be mobile party barges. Sure. You know, and 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 even though plenty of art mutant vehicles out there um, are beautiful, uh, they they seem to always have some massive sound component. And and I and to me that kind of diminishes the value of the, 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 the pure art aspect of the vehicle. Well, I think there's a cult of personality that goes along with any um, massive project where, where the, the, the patron of that project uh, feels the need to, to accent that art piece with a well-known DJ. It's it's cult of personality. Of course, I mean? and 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 it may not even be that it's the well-known DJ. They simply want to have just you know it's it's gotten silly. We have this arms race going on, you know, funded by billionaires to see who can have the baddest sound system. Sure. You know, and and yeah, I, I mean, absolutely, that's what's going on. And and not you know, not to mention sometimes it's fun. You know, I I think it's fun. It's fun to dance to an art car. Sometimes, I just kind of wish that every art car wasn't a, a party barge. Well, I agree with that. And I also wish that every art car wasn't like a stroboscopic spasm of LED light, you know? But I think there's an art form to big sound, because I know some of those those audio guys, you know, and they're very serious about their sound. The guys that worked with us on The Sanctuary, um, we put, it was an insane sound system, but the, the emphasis was on clarity of sound and I heard over and over and over again at front of house people coming up and being like dude I can stand 10 feet from those speakers and have a conversation with my friend and I'm not a sound guy I don't know anything about sound but I noticed that Mm -hmm. when I was when I would go you know back to to board the board the the car or whatever it was I could walk right past those speakers and it was so clear and so you know and that that's that's cool that's um that's a an artistic technical challenge that I can respect. So I agree that there is there is sound pollution on the playa, 100%. And I also agree that there is crazy light pollution on the playa, 100%. Um, and I think that artists are pushing the boundary in both regards, and they're having to compete with a more polluted environment on the playa to, to, to express themselves right. artistically. Well, you, you can also argue that there's participant pollution. I mean, I remember back in like 2012 going out on a Thursday night and that was the year there was that stupid Facebook thing. It was like a like button, <laughs> like a hand that it was, it was, it was the Facebook, you know, put button push hand. What year was this? I can't remember. But anyway, I was sitting on a, a, a lame art piece that right, you know, on more or less a straight line between the two o'clock corner and the 10 o'clock corner. And it was Thursday night and me and a friend were sitting there looking at the crowd and it was unrelenting. The number of people 
that we're going across the playa right there. And I'm like, this is Thursday night. This is crazy. You know, wow. it's just, it just, I just couldn't believe that it was that kind of population already kind of going. And just like the number of people out there was crazy. You know, well, if you sell 74,000 tickets to an event, you know, that's what you get. Sure. And you, know, you get an awful lot of people. And we're, we're, you know, as you know, Burning Man is in a, is in a, a moment of truth. Uh, uh, basically, it looks like the BLM wants to shut the event down. Yeah. And, um, and one of I don't the, think the BLM wants to shut the event down. I want the, I think the BLM is pushing as far as they can go to see how much funding they can how much of that pie they can they can absorb. I have been I was in deep conversation with uh, some people at Burning Man about this and I kept on getting them to tell me what's going on what's going on you must have be, you must be having conversations with people at the BLM you guys you know you, you've more or less been on cordial terms with them for decades you know what's going on and they said we don't know we do not know and they're you know we don't know what they're after yes they could it, this could be a negotiating ploy yes it could also be it sounds like a money grab man to me because I don't think the BLM has anything to gain from shutting down Burning Man Burning Man dumps in Burning Man props up the economy of of a, of a region right. that would have nothing without Burning Man. But imagine that somebody from Trump land, someone from Ryan Zinke or his, his successor, you know, kind of decided that they were going to, you know, from sitting there in Washington, D.C., having never been to Burning Man, just basically say, we're, we're, we're going to mess with this event. We're, we're, we're going we're gonna to give it such crazy conditions that it's going to fall apart. And, we don't, and they don't care. The people in Washington, they don't care about the funding of the Winnemucca office. I know the Winnemucca office doesn't want to shut it down, but they're not in charge. The people in Washington uh, are in really charge. Do you really think that, that anybody in the administration is even paying attention to Bernie? It seems like the administration has a lot on their plate right now. <laughs> there are some people who are seriously messed up in the American, you know, executive branch, you know, um, and I think that they are trying to win a culture war. And I think that anything that flies against their idea of Mar-a-Lago being, you know, like the, the, the pinnacle of Western culture, mm -hmm. I, I think, yeah, they want to shut it down. Interesting. Um, um, I, I know it's a little bit conspiratorial, but I, right, I hear no, what you're but, saying. But I know people who know Ryan Zinke well and, and are like, yeah, he just, you know, he just doesn't like those people, you know, and and he never did it. But, you know, so it may be his successor. Anyway, there's another possibility, which is that simply um, someone came into a position of power in the BLM who had never been to Burning Man, probably never even been to Nevada and looked at some of these problems like, oh, there's trash on the freeway. Oh, well, of course, just get dumpsters just get a bunch of dumpsters that'd yeah. be no problem and oh there are people sneaking into the event oh we'll just get like barriers um the barriers one is particularly ridiculous i don't know if you saw this figure but burning man actually for for grins went and inquired with a company that rents those traffic barriers like what it would take first of all the cost was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars i think maybe even the millions but lots and lots of money second of all not enough traffic barriers and exist in nevada to to fulfill one you know what i'm talking about the jersey I'm talking barriers about, I'm talking, yeah just, just for the purpose of this recording we're talking about making it so that there are those solid barriers either made of concrete or filled with water completely surrounding the gate road and surrounding the entire city it's something like 12 or 13 miles of these barriers not only is it incredibly expensive to rent them they don't exist there's not a, that that quantity doesn't exist in Nevada. And if we were to try to make them, this one company in, in, in Reno that makes them, it would take um, 
uh, 149 days. Oh, no, I'm sorry, 1,400 days. Wow. In other words, it would take years. So it's basically ridiculous. It's basically ridiculous. And so what might have happened is that some greenhorn uh, got into a position of power in the BLM where they said, well, this is a problem happening here. Let's, this, obviously, you need traffic barriers. You know, so we don't know. We don't know what's going on. Are you involved? Are you? It sounds like you're pretty invested in this. It sounds like you're pretty close with the BLM and pretty close with the uh, with the org. Well, I'm not close with the BLM. I did know people in the BLM back in the years 99, 2000, 2001, 2002. That's because my first involvement with Burning Man was um, volunteering with the cleanup effort. In fact, in the year 2000, I was in charge of the lime sweeps. It was the first year that the lime sweeps were actually ever successful uh, of the first inspection. And uh, so I got to know a lot of the BLM people then, and they were really cool. I mean, I, you know, well, with one exception. Uh, they were cool people and you know I had a rapport with them and they just they just wanted the plaque cleaned up and as you probably know probably your listeners know as well Burning Man has done an absolutely insanely successful job at cleaning up ever since I mean it's just amazing what we do out there so uh, invested no do I know the characters? Yes. Do I know the people at Burning Man? Yes I, can, I, count, I count most all of them as my friends and uh, you know we all uh, we all want it to keep going. Um, I do have. I mean, we're getting far afield from LED art, but I, I do have no, one. Go on I do have then. one little uh, <laughs> idea, though, which is that uh, if, in fact, Burning Man gets shut down for one year, two years, um, it, it it brings up some interesting possibilities. Of course, first, the obvious one is that. The BLM realizes what it's like to go through a year without Burning Man. Sure. Well, that's what <laughs> and, I'm, they, and they scream. That's what I'm saying, man. There's so much money and resources that come into that area because of Burning Man. Oh, I know. They I would know. shut down those those communities. Right, but the people who are behind this are not Nevada people. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's something from Washington. I don't think. Wow. I that's, mean, that's the, conspiratorial. The, 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 it's, it's pretty. No, it's, not, it's not conspiratorial at all. The people from Washington are in charge. The, the the lines of power, the the authority is with the people in Washington. Um, the people in the Winnemuc office, no, they don't want to shut down. Mm. They might want to squeeze it. That's one possibility. They may be playing a very very high stakes game of chicken. I would love the org to play chicken with the BLM and say, yeah, fine, we cancel it. Now, that's going to be pain for the org because the org has now evolved into this monster with, you know, like uh, tens of full time, you know, full year, full time employees. And all of those people would more or less have to be laid off. I mean, it would have to go down to a skeleton crew for a year um, or two. Um, But think of what would happen. First of all, the BLM would scream bloody murder and they would, you know, oh, oh, um, um, that that, that Burning Man thing. What what do you need from us to get that going again? Right. Let me finish. And then the second thing that might happen is it will it will focus the minds of the people within Burning Man into what's important here. Is it important that it be this monstrous cultural event with, you know, you know, they, they Larry was talking about 100,000 people back in like 2005 and everyone thought he was crazy. Now we're at the doorstep of 100,000 people. Do you really want Burning Man to be 100,000 people though? That's the thing. It's well, my hard position, to slow the train right, down. Right, well, well, my opinion is not relevant at this, this moment. Um, 
if Burning Man got shut down, it would focus the minds of the people who run Burning Man on thinking, what do we want here? Do we want it to be this monster um, with, you know, like celebrities flying in and these incredibly fancy camps and incredibly well-funded art, you know? Or do we want it to be a much smaller event that doesn't have celebrities flying in? I don't in, know if Burning Man's ever going to be... That, be able to be brought back to, to well that's what a shutdown might do I maybe. mean that's what I'm saying they Burning Man or would could increase the scarcity of the event you know scarcity equals equals value and I think that if they did shut down it would be when they brought it back unless they limited the number of tickets dramatically it would be even more popular but they might make the decision after a year off to say, okay, we really are going to have only 50,000 people and we really are just going to have a lottery for the tickets. Sure. You know, like, like what they should have been, they should have done for years. Well, what do you mean by lottery? Because I, um, well, right now, well, right now the system is so dang broken. It's just so amazingly broken. Um, it's supposed to be first come first served. It's by definition, it's supposed to be who can hit that enter the room button faster, which is, which is kind of a crazy idea in the first place, but that's the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be first come first serve. Well, there's so much malfunction in the ticket distribution system that it ends up being a lottery anyway. It ends up being lucky. But you know, but the people who are running the bot farms have a natural advantage. So it's it's the worst sort of lottery ever. It's a lottery where people who run bot farms have an inherent advantage. And that's not what Burning Man intended, but that's what we've got. Um, you know what I think could really fix a lot of those problems is the ability to, uh, to have a marketplace, right? So another group of uh, event holders that I'm familiar with, they have a marketplace where you buy your ticket and then you can sell that ticket, but only through only through the marketplace. Right. And that's another, that's, that's part of the system too, um, that, that, that people have been screaming for Burning Man to implement for a and long it's time. Such anyway. a simple, it's such a simple solution right. to well, such well, a big the other, problem. Well, the other solution is if you want, if you, if you're fine, you're not using a ticket, uh, you can only sell it back to the org. That's another crazy, yeah, that's a, that's a huge one. I don't know if that's the, the solution, but having, you know, like the like the Apple Store, right? Like the Apple iStore for for iPhones, right? Mm -hmm. it, it it puts certain controls on on an economy, and you can't have the Wild West, uh, you know, Wild West capitalism for Burning Man tickets because it results in people taking advantage. And oh well, it would mean that all the tickets would hand, land in the hands of the wealthy. Exactly. You know, all right. Well, that's what I'm saying. Well, anyway, so but to finish what I'm saying, if Burning Man was canceled for a year. I think it would be very interesting to see what the organizers of Burning Man would choose to do when it resuscitated. It might go back to being 80,000 people. It might, they might say, no, what, you know, we're just going to make it 40,000 and we're going to do a lottery. So a lot of old, old timers can come, some old timers can't come and that's it. We can't run this thing so big anymore. See, I don't think that even if they did put a cap at 40,000, I think that the problem is mostly that the cat is out of the bag. There's interest among such a wide range of people. Burning Man is like the de facto cool cultural expression that's happening right now that you're going to have this competition for tickets and it's never going to be an underground event anymore. It can't be an underground event anymore. It's blown up. 
it's not, and it's I, also I, not the crest of the wave anymore. There I agree. Are, there are other things that are like. No, I, I agree. I, I think that the, the, the population will be limited, not because fewer people will want to go, but because Burning Man will make a different ticket system. Sure. You know, and yeah, there'll be a lot of folks who want to go and can't go. And that's, you know, that's the problem. But the thing is, I mean, you may have heard this. Um, a lot of the, the, the main reason, if I'm not mistaken, the main reason that the BLM has been limiting the population of Burning Man to the extent that it has is because of Highway 447. <laughs> it's come down to the goddamn highway. Sure. The highway, a two-lane highway, simply can't handle the influx or the outflux. Yeah, uh, so uh, it's kind of a shit show. That it's might... a total shit show. The thing is, it, we're running up against these crazy natural barriers, which is what one of the reasons why Burning Man has been, you know, fine with having people set up airline service. It's like a microcosm for humankind. Uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, so we'll see what happens. I, I, we know Burning Man is happening this year because uh, all this controversy doesn't affect the, the permit this year. Uh, but it probably, you know, but it almost certainly affects it next year. It might not even affect it, affect it next year. This, the context of this hoo-ha with these outrageous um, conditions uh, demanded by the BLM is all for a 10-year permit. Burning Man was trying to get a 10-year permit so they don't have to go through this permitting, you know, uncertainty every year. Sure. And, and the BLM said, oh, you want a 10-year permit? Here are your conditions. Right. So this doesn't apply to this year and it may not even apply to next year. Well, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll see. I, I think Burning Man is definitely, it's definitely an amazing canvas, you know, oh, to oh, get it, back to the, to it the, to is, the Absolutely. It is, a, it is blessed that way. This is, you know, and, and I got my jolt of enthusiasm about it back in 1998. I left Burning Man in 1998 with a, at least four projects in my mind, all what of were those which projects? I was going to build. I can't even remember now. But they were... There are projects that like came no, no, to, no, into no, being. No, no, no. I, I didn't do a single one. But the point is... I was inspired to do a project. Sure. I was inspired to do four projects, and it doesn't really matter whether you do them or not. The point is, is that you get this incredible jolt of enthusiasm and empowerment from having it be, and I'm going to use your word because I use it too, a canvas. Yeah. You have this endless blank canvas that you can put something on. You have an audience of at that time fifteen thousand people, and uh, and 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 then later on, I got into the honorarium system where you know that they give me money. Uh, I get I can get money for uh, building my, my project, and so, so your first piece was mesmer. Was that one of your first big no, my LED first, pieces? My first piece was called Spin. Okay, it seems like most of the pieces that I've seen of yours online have been like kinetic. Um, persistence of vision pieces where you have LEDs that are spinning creating a that's recent um, it's funny that's the beginning and it's also recent mm -hmm. my first piece was in fact a, a POV piece it was called spin and it was this was in the year 2000 and it was that was that was my 12 foot tall piece it was a vertical shaft with six foot arms sticking up out to the side you know four arms and it spun around on this vertical axis and at the end of each arm was a column of LED clusters from the from the LED sign industry back in back in the days when LED signs were were made you would get these two inch by two inch huge plastic 
things, each one having like 45 LEDs in them. Third of them red, third of them green, third of them blue, oh, and wow. then and that was a pixel. That was one sure. pixel, and I was <laughs> so um, just large, huge yeah, pixels. Right. So that so each arm had a vertical column of 16 pixels, and so this thing formed a cylindrical digital display, 16 pixels tall, and. Third, 360 pixels around, mm -hmm. and and it had four arms that swept through the space, um, creating the POV effect. And it was surprisingly effective. I mean, given the fact that it was 16 pixels tall, given the fact that it was uh, a gorgeous three-bit color, literally red, <laughs> green, blue, sure. white, black, cyan, magenta, yellow. So that's no, it. So no no gradations. No gradations at all. Wow. And it, and it, and it worked real, you know, and it was using, you know, the wrong technology. It was using these LEDs from the sign industry. It was using a, um, what was it? It was a, a funny box that you could buy back then that connected to Wi-Fi and had a serial port on it. And the, the purpose of this, so that if you had a Wi-Fi network in your office and you had a serial printer, you could plug the printer into this box and then access that printer via the Wi-Fi network. <laughs> Believe it or not. And, and, so it was and, a print and, server. Yeah, well, well, it was a it was a Wi-Fi to serial converter, yeah. and I had it going into some hardware created by a company in Rancho Cordova called LED Effects. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. No. A guy named Kevin Furry, and he, you know, his company provided the kind of the hardware to 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 do the LEDs, and then I had a, an IBM PC laptop transmitting Wi-Fi packets. Uh, to this this box I just described, and and then the, and then those packets would go out to um, the, the the LED effects hardware, and that's how it worked. So you wrote your own software to drive it. Oh yeah, of course I did. You know, I I, I always write my own software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's your you're a programmer, and that's mm -hmm. the, the angle that you come at this industry from is from yeah. the programming. Yeah, and and all of my projects with some exceptions um, come from a point of view of hey. I wonder if I could do that. And it's also, a technical challenge. Exactly. And, and, and of course, the technical challenges are way more interesting if there's ones that no one's ever done before. Of course. So, so for example, uh, Firmament began as a technical challenge, which was a couple of technical challenges. One, it was going to be a suspended canopy that would be interlaced with uh, motion, a proximity, motion or proximity detectors. And so the mo moment someone walked into it, some picture would be displayed above that person's head, representing that person, an avatar, if you will. And as that person walked around underneath the canopy, the, the avatar would follow them around. And you were going to do that with, with uh, proximity sensors? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, with, with IR detectors, whatever. You know, I wasn't quite sure of the technology. That was the original idea, and it wasn't called Firmament. It was, I didn't even have a good name for it. And, and, and then, like, you know, if two people walked around, and then they kind of came together, their avatars would meet, and then some explosion would happen, or some other kind of fun animation would happen. But it was very, very much a, a technical show-off-y thing. And, and then the other technical challenge was to make it on a triangular grid because I knew I was going to be doing these these LEDs at very very low resolution uh, the LED spacing on firmament is three inches and I had this intuitive idea that if you did 
a grid of LEDs uh, that was a triangular rather than rectangular, it would do better with organic shapes. Well, it does. And I mean, that's, I think that's part of the beauty of firmament is that it is such an organic shape. That's why people love it so much. It well, looks thank like, you. well, I mean, it looks like a leaf or something, you know, and people lay underneath it and it's kind of the de facto chill trip out space that's, right. that's how I was introduced well, to it well thank you so much absolutely um, the, uh, so there were two technical challenges one the triangular grid which I did do um, and then the other one was this um, you know motion sensor thing and and it was totally interactive right because Burning Man always says oh all art should be interactive how you know you fill out an honorarium thing how is your piece interactive it's not like is your piece interactive it's how is it tell me how you're going to make your piece interactive <laughs> well first people take psychedelics then they lay down underneath it <laughs> that's more or less what I write for firmament these days I write oh well people form community and blah 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 and it's true they do but it's not interactive in the classic sense. Well, I didn't realize that it was interactive. I thought it was like a display piece. It know? isn't. It's not interactive. Yeah. It, it was going to be interactive like what I just described to you. And then I started researching the motion sensor technology. So there's ultrasonic. So there's IR. I was going to say, we've done a lot with that. And it's, it's that's hard. why I was so surprised that you use proximity because... Yeah, it's 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 hard to find the right technology right, it's hard. to and, do and, and, and position and, tracking underneath right. a piece. I know. Well, so guess what? I, you know, I started getting scared. I started saying, oh, my God, how is this going to work? How many hundreds of IR sensors do I need to have up there uh, in order to make this beat work at all? You know, and the numbers started seeming kind of scary. I think I came up with 900 at one point. You know, you know, and, so and then that, processing all that yeah, data Yeah, processing all that data. I mean, it started getting kind of prohibitive. And then I went for a hike with my dear father, um, who is a landscape architect. And, you know, I hadn't been on a hike with him in a while. It was kind of fun. You know, I grew up in Marin, so we went there in his house. We went hiking on Mount Tim. And I described to him this project I did that I had in mind. And he said, you know, I think you've got something different. I think what you really have here is something totally different than what your intention is. I think that what you are creating here is this gorgeous kind of space where you can project images of the sun, the moon, the stars, the aurora borealis, you know, those Hubble photographs, the entire firmament. And he came up with that name. Exactly. So is he and an artist it, as well? Is your father He's a an landscape artist? architect. Cool. He, in other words, he is, a, he is a master of organizing space for people to you live know, in. That, there's art in everything. Man. Absolutely. Well, well, architecture is by definition an art. But the point is, is that he's always had this amazing eye for kind of, you know, he would come into my apartment in San Francisco and rearrange my furniture. And, hmm. and I'd say, what the heck are you doing? And I'd look at it and i go, oh, yeah, cool. You does know, he, it, is it, he like a practitioner of feng shui? Does he? No, no, you know, he's totally intuitive. Yeah. He's very, he's very intuitive and, he, and he's right, you know, almost all the time. Well, anyway, um, so he totally changed my mind. I completely changed focus, out went all the interactivity, and basically it just became a, a, a space to project these images. Um, definitely, you know, focusing on the kind of the Hubble issue, you know, the photographs, the space photographs, as well as the abstract images. And then... Uh, then I said, okay, we should do some music. Okay. And my initial idea was uh, doing down-tempo music, which I'm very, very uh, fond of. And then it's like, yeah, maybe classical would work too. 
So believe it or not, the first night that Burnt Firmament ran, it, it played down tempo all night. I actually like that. I like that paradigm. I like it too. But the second classical night, fits too. but the second night, I played the classical music, and who boy, I could just tell. I could just tell the moment people started showing up that everyone was like, "Whoa!" Well, it's 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 a novelty, right. especially on playa. You know, that's what, I was encouraging our camp last year to have a classical music night during burn. I was like, guys, that is the classiest thing we could ever do. Well, I'm quite proud that, um, you know, after I did the classical music thing in 2015, I, 2016 was full of classical music stuff. Was it? I didn't, I didn't oh, yeah. notice that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was lots of, you know, that was, um, I, I'm not saying that's the beginning of the playa orchestras, but they definitely became a lot more visible um, in 2016. There's a camp called the Phage, uh, yeah, which, the Phage, which is like, you know, kind of, I've always perceived the Phage as being the cutting edge, you know, really young people, really adve musically adventurous people who like just the most gnarly uh, dubstep imaginable. In 2016, the Phage had a classical music night. That's awesome. Yeah, right. You know, and I, I didn't write the classical music, of course, but I will take a little bit of a bow for getting that idea out I there. think 2016, I camped next to a death metal camp. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Uh, to, to, to go to the other extreme. But, uh, but anyway, so that's, that was the evolution of Firmament. You know, it began as this technical challenge and, you know, kind of show off a technical challenge piece. Um, and then it ended up being this, um, you know, kind of, you know, uh, you know all right, we're just going to display beautiful images. And then music got added to it. And then it ended up being a goddamn community. I mean, and it ended up being this incredible meeting space. I, I could not believe the numbers of people who would hang there all night. You know, I'm sure you've all heard the the the, the nicknames like uh, trippy tripper trap and hippie trap. <laughs> Some people call it the mustache because the first two years it kind of had a little bit of a mustache profile. But the funniest name that I heard in 2015 was permanent, which meant you couldn't get your friends to leave. Ah, that's you know, they, they were permanently knocked down on their back sure. and, and uh, that I was very proud of that I thought that was pretty funny uh, and yeah so so you know a technical challenge led to uh, you know a visual thing to an audio thing to a social thing so do you and, think that's what you're best known for yeah. yeah oh yeah the social I am I think I'm best known for creating these spaces um, and I did that at firm I did that at Burning Man for Firmament for three years and then, uh, and then I did Paraluna, and that was last year. Remind me, Paraluna was is the spinning disc. Okay, that's, right, that's right. the big twenty-eight foot diameter disc. Now I say spinning, even though most people haven't seen it spin. The reason it didn't spin much in two thousand eighteen is because some jackass climbed the the, um, the boom lift and tried to hang from these very 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 lightweight spokes and broke nine of them. Right. And so I was able to lash those spokes back up to the boom lift but because it was lashed I couldn't spin it anymore well so I thought the whole point of the piece was it was a persistence of vision piece yeah it is but the thing is is that it wasn't spinning so it didn't really get the benefit of the persistence of vision but lo and behold people loved it anyway of and, course. And, and basically the it, it, in a way it still was a persistence of vision piece but just as persistence of vision involves motion 
The motion was not the spinning of the piece because it wouldn't spin anymore. The motion was the content. As long as I created content that moved, as long as I had a photograph that moved with sufficient velocity across all those LEDs, which in some cases were spaced by you know two feet apart yeah, from each yeah. other, it, wor it worked. So really that jackass who climbed the tower I owe him a little bit of thanks because it taught me just how much people can perceive your image even if the spacing is incredibly wide. I mean, nothing ever goes like you plan, you know, and that's the right. thing. Well, that, is was that, a pretty, the, that was a pretty dramatic shock. I mean, I've, I've, the, I've never wanted to go home as bad as I wanted to for about 30 hours after that. Sure. I was just in misery. Yeah. And, and, then, and then after 30 hours, I kind of, you know, started thinking, you know what? Actually, people are enjoying it. They don't even know it's supposed to spin. Okay, fine. Now, I'm making a piece right now called Peristella. What is Peristella? Well, it's simply Paraluna, but it doesn't spin, which is tons, tons easier to so make. you're over the idea. You're, gonna, you're not going to try and revisit that next year. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, doing, I'm still doing spinning pieces. Absolutely. Spinning is still better than non-spinning. But I'm doing this piece for um, an upcoming uh, an interactive arts, not interactive, but immersive art space in New York City called uh, Zero Space. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm doing, I'm, I'm loaning them a piece for a year. Well, it's Peristella. If I tried to do Paraluna for a year, I'd be in for uh, a little bit of, most almost certainly some difficulty because anytime something is electromechanical and it's moving oh my god yeah it's, you'd it's be in there like every every right. month you'd be repairing it so i'm making them a piece which is essentially the equivalent of what paraluna ended up being last year and because of that jackass who climbed my tower i know it will work right right so so it's funny how things work out so, so let, let me give you one more deal like the the, the thing and I don't take credit for this. This is just kind of the magic of all these things that I've fallen into. I made Paraluna last year, you know, and, I, and it had the classical music. You know, it didn't do what I do, uh, that I, I didn't spin like I intended. And yet it was so powerful that people were even more moved than they were under Firmament. And that kind of really surprised me. I even ran into, on Facebook, a woman who got a tattoo of Paraluna put on her arm <laughs> wow. because she was she was so moved by it. Do you remember how last year there was this piece that was a moon yeah. attached to a bicycle? I thought that was so good. I met that young woman. Her name was, she called herself Luna, and she was from Mumbai. And uh, she, it, I, I think that was actually the most brilliant piece on the whole playa last year. It was one of my favorites. Uh, and... Uh, and I, I asked her to come by and say hello when she came, and she did. And I played uh, A Clair de la Lune by Debussy and while she was there. And this woman with a tattoo on her arm, she has a photograph of Paraluna with the moon in the, behind it. And that's that, cool. And that's what's on her arm. I love the, the artist collaborations that happen yeah. kind of spontaneously. We did a like, Sonic Runway thing. I mm -hmm. love those guys. Those guys are super cool. We even did a thing with the uh, 747, which was cool like I like those guys as people I think they're cool interesting people I think that their installation you know it's whatever I wasn't blown away by the the the, the light art on their installation and I you know whatever you might think of the concept they were nice genuinely cool people that were easy to talk to fun to be around same thing with uh, Lion Warrior I thought those guys were amazing yeah. We had a collaboration with them. We did a thing with the uh, 747, did a thing with the uh, Sonic Runway. I'm very interested in meeting the people of oh, that yeah. create the art. You know what I mean? I, I think that's like one of my favorite parts of Burning Man is just getting to know, you know, 
what people's artistic intentions are. And Absolutely. And, um, you know, we, we both know just kind of how this kind of community of light art is kind of taking off. Um, you know, LEDs are awesome. It's like probably the worst name for a Facebook group ever, you know, but it's a great group, you know? So there's another and, group. And, and it's all caps to boot, right? But it's, but there's it's a group called Ooh Shiny, right? I don't know if you're on this group or not. No, it's an no, email list, it. but it is, I swear to God, man, it is the highest density of heavy hitting new media artists that I've ever come across. Uh-huh. People from Chicago, New York, all the major new media firms, um, have people who are represented on this group and it's great because all it is is conversations about technical new media questions. We meet up every once in a while. It's probably a thousand, fifteen hundred people on the list and it's an email list. Cool. But it's great. And cool. every time somebody posts something interesting, I'll look I'll look at their portfolio, I'll like find out what company right. they're from or you know, look at their the domain attached to their email and just stalk them for a second and I've I've met some cool people through that list. Neat. Same thing with LEDs are awesome. It's all interesting people. Yeah. Well, I, I, I love that community. I love the Burning Man artist community. I've been, I've been pretty deeply involved with the Burning Man artist community since at least 2002. Um, you know, the whole kind of like uh, in Berkeley down here, Murray Street which used to be where the crucible was and Michael Christian's studio still is. And, and then the across crucibles. the street and across the street, you have Jim Mason's you know, stuff, which used to be the shipyard. Now it's all power labs. Um, the, the community there was w- without peer. And, I, and I've always loved being part of that. Yeah. Are you still part of like, would you consider yourself part of Burning Man communities? Of course. You do like kind of your own thing though. You know, <sighs> Well, I'm part of something called the Rhythm Society, which has got a whole lot of people that go to Burning Man. They don't stay. They don't stay in the same community at all. I mean, I'm sorry, they don't stay in the same camp at all. But they, uh, you know, but we, we still kind of know each other. I'm kind of the paterfamilias of my own little camp, which is just kind of focused on whatever art I'm doing that year. Yeah. I have an absolutely superb group of people. I could not be any luckier um, to have the people that I have. And uh, How big is the camp? 25 people. Yeah, that's you know, a great yeah, size. Yeah, it's a totally awesome size. We had 60 people at the camp that I camped with last year, and that felt good. And I've camped with big camps. Yeah. I've camped with tiny camps. I'd much rather camp with a camp of 20 to 50 people. Right. Yeah, yeah. If you camp in a camp of like, you know, 25 grown-ups, that's the best. Yeah. Yeah, because like, you know, stuff gets cleaned without anyone screaming, hey, clean up your stuff. Grown-ups being people who have been to Burning Man or at least get the ethos. Well, they, it's actually, it's even simpler than that. You know, people who just have the ethos that you used to, you used to, piece of silverware you wash it you know it's just, sure. it's just those little tiny details uh make a big difference in uh your burning man experience you know as you know i'm sure um so yeah so i mean i i'm i guess to me the burning man community that i camp with is not a, you know much as i love them is not as interesting as kind of the artist community there's definitely i'm definitely connected with the, the kind of the honorarium artists you know the people who you know apply for and get honorarium there's actually uh, there's actually a secret list for the honorarium artists that people who work at burning man aren't allowed to be part of and you know i'm part of those and they're like LEDs are awesome. You know, you can just ask questions, and you can say, you know, what what does everybody think of this? Now, is that the group that gets grants? 
Well, it's not. It, it, look, it's a loose group of people. Yeah. Um, the people who get grants are the people who apply for honorariums and the, the org chooses. Well, it's, that's what I mean. Is that, that equivalent? Is like an honorarium? That's what I mean by honorarium. Yes. Okay. But it's but it's you know it's a loose group. I mean it's it was it was formed a few years ago because a lot of us who had been getting honorariums for years weren't happy about the terms of the contract and some other things, and so we formed this private group so that we could discuss it without. Are, are you know showing our hand to the org so know? I've never even applied for a grant from Burning Man honestly I found it much more practical I always work in a group first of all so I'm always part of a you know I've never gone in as like my own artist or been you know uh, in charge of my own piece but um, I also find that the, the grants that I see given out are too small to really uh, fund some of the, the bigger ideas that are out there. Are you, right. well, or do you get grants from Burning Man? Are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I've, I've gotten grants. Do you from... still self-fund? No. <laughs> and so a Burning Man grant pays for your entire thing. Yeah. Wow. Uh, within a few thousand dollars. Sure. sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I don't think I've ever had a surplus, um, but I've never run a serious deficit either. Oh, that's great. So, so, for example, I ran a deficit the year I did Firmament of maybe seven thousand dollars. Well, that's because I bought a whole bunch of generators. Sure. So, so, so I had to buy. I, I had to buy generators in order to run Firmament. Is that really a Firmament expense? No, you know, it's just that um, I, 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 I had to buy a bunch of infrastructure, which I use for other things. Mm -hmm. So basically, I've always come out pretty well on the on the honorarium thing. A lot of artists run into serious deficit land and they end up having to do the GoFundMes or whatever else. Yeah, I have no um, idea how much it costs to, to make a piece um, that's like standalone. Right. But I know like the big camps or the, the art cars, I don't know how you would make an art car for... Well, that. all right. So, so here's a. I mean, the paradigm that you're in, if I'm not mistaken, is that you get a fairly, you know, you know, sizable budget, and then you hire people, right? Um, no, I mean, I think that the project we always work ourselves, but it's the group of artists that I collaborate with. Sometimes they hire like assistants. But it's basically us who are doing the, the right, fabrication it, and the but, install. Right, but you but but you get paid. Yes. Right. Well the honorarium system is not meant for people to get paid. No, I understand that. Right. The honorarium system is designed so that you, the artists, get your expenses paid. Um, but you as far as um, you don't get a salary, you don't get a, you don't get an hourly and and anyone who helps you is volunteering. And that's why they give out with along with the money they give. They oftentimes give out a nice big handful of free tickets yeah. so that then the people who um, are helping you um, get in return for their help. Um, a free ticket and that usually makes everybody happy although I, I've learned through the years that people are not just doing it for the tickets they really enjoy being part of a project of they, course you know, I mean that's the best part of Burning Man if I know you're, if a you're lot not, of people but that's not that's not prima facie you know um, evident to most people I think that to people who have been going for a number of years and actually a lot of first timers depends on the personality but I think that that's kind of de facto the a big draw to a lot of people for Burning Man is being part of a project oh, or yeah. expressing yourself artistically or 
Yeah, just being part of something. Right. And that's, and, and that's why I have such a lovely crew, is that they all want to be part of something, and I give them something to be part of, and I need their help, and they need my thing. So it all works out. Yeah. It all works out really, really well. So and, you take and, the- and I constantly encourage everyone in my crew to make something themselves. Now, you're taking your art and you're renting it out. You're getting commissions from other, other cities, city arts festivals, other uh, institutions like museums or... Um, yeah, I'm getting there. I, I, I have my business as a rental artist is pretty well developed. Um, you know, I get calls from a lot of festivals and a lot of events and some private parties and, and, and I make good money. That's the lion's share of my income because this is my only job. Um, uh, it comes from that. I've started getting commissions. I want to get many more of them, and but that's that's just that's just kind of getting rolling right now. Well, that's the that's the 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 paradox, right? Is how do you take your art form as an artist and turn that into a career where you can make a living? And it well, sounds to me well, like I've done it. Well, it sounds like you you've had a career pre pre art producer. Put it this way, I had a lot of runway. You know, like I, I, I earned enough money as a programmer to, you know, buy my warehouse that I live in sure. you know, and, and build my house. So I don't have the, the I don't have the torturous um, need that so many of my friends have, which is to somehow afford a house in the Bay Area. Yeah. You know, I, it's I, crazy. I know. It's, I've it's pretty not. much given up on the, the idea of owning land, at least until there's a crazy earthquake and everything crashes. <laughs> By yeah. the rubble. <laughs> oh, believe me, you know, like, um, you know, when the, the 2008 downturn was really good news in my view because all of a sudden houses in my neighborhood, you know, here in West Oakland uh, were affordable again. Is and, that and, when and, you bought and, your, and now they're not. Is that no, when you bought I bought my warehouse in 2003. So uh, I did not get a, 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 a great big bargain on that at all. Yeah. But, uh, but I did all right. I, I did all right. And what's, what's important is that I can make a modest income and call myself successful. Um, I don't need to earn, you know, two hundred thousand dollars a year. Well, I don't think anybody's making a killing doing doing light art or new media art. I think there's a handful of people who are making it work. I think there's a number of companies that are doing really well for themselves, but I don't see anybody getting rich creating new media art, and that's okay. I think that it's. I mean, there, there are some big names who you know. That's not I, what I, it's really I, about. I, I think everybody I know that's doing this is trying to push the envelope. Right. If you like, imagine human knowledge as a bubble. Yeah. We're on like one little section of that bubble, trying to push that bubble out. Oh yeah, that is my major. That is my main motivation. Is I'm trying to, you know, it, it, it happens again and again. I found I found myself going looking at myself, going, oh look, you did it again. You're you're just simply trying to do something that someone else, no one else has done. Well, you know, the cool part is that all of the the new media artists in my circle that I know are doing that in different sections of that bubble. We don't really compete because like me and you, for example, <laughs> you know, we're doing, we're both light artists. We're both working in the same medium with LEDs. We're pushing the bubble in two different places. You know, I'm very much into mapping. I'm into sculptural mapping. Uh, it seems like you're very into like contextual um, POV based installations, kinetics. 
it expresses itself in different ways. Yeah, so, so we have two can, different sets of clients. Well, just, two, just out of curiosity, when you say mapping, do you mean mapping with video projectors or mapping with LEDs? No, volumetric pixel mapping. So doing things where you have a volume of pixels in real space and you're mapping content across that in a 3D, 3D environment. So like a, I've, I've never seen you do a volumetric uh, LED display. Well, uh, Sanctuary was volumetric. It was? Yep. ICM in uh, Los Angeles was volumetric. That was just like a big hanging pixel cube, basically. Big chandelier. Okay. Yeah, I, I saw a picture of you hanging from uh, with climbing gear on that yeah. one, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, that's, yes. I didn't know that um, the Sanctuary had a volumetric aspect to it. All I saw was the you know, lights on the surface. Yeah, well, there were many layers. And it was volumetric in that... There were slices in Z-Space. Mm -hmm. So, for example, with Madrix, the tool that we use for that project, um, you can do volumetric content by mapping on a two-dimensional array, right? So you have, like, mm -hmm. your, your two-dimensional array of LEDs, and then you can create slices in, in the Z-dimension. So you can mm -hmm. create depth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, so then you have a volume of pixels where you can run generative three-dimensional content. Now, for the next project we're doing, we're switching away from Madrix because of limitations with that software. And we're switching to a program that's much more akin to a game engine. It's a real-time generative software called Smode, which is a mm -hmm. French a piece of French software. Um, you can think of it like, like a real-time 3D Studio Max with, with the ability to output to pixels, mm -hmm. right? Or it was written for projection, but we've been working with the developers to get him to implement or get them to implement um, pixel pixel control, so individual pixel control. So this piece that we're working on has you know thirty to sixty thousand pixels across a number of um, sculptural elements of the architecture, and uh, those pixels will be mapped in three D, and then we'll generate you know a content based on particle effects in that three dimensional environment that manifests out into into that array of pixels. The content that we do is very non-contextual. Like we never pretty much, it's, it's all architectural. So it's, um, it's based on, I, I think of it as like flowing waves of energy, you know, mm -hmm. or, or flowing waves of light or, you know, it's, it's that paradigm versus the video content paradigm. And uh, yeah, this is just a great environment to do that in. It's mode. Mm -hmm. I, I've seen that word. I've seen that work. Smode or? I've seen Smode, yeah. Yeah. I've seen that, yeah. Well, it'll be really cool to, to, to show you. I, I think it's fascinating how different, different people attack the idea of mapping content onto pixels because pixels and projection are fundamentally two different, um, they're two different paradigms to wrap your head around. You know, projection is a very two-dimensional thing. It's, a, it's like a wrapper. Mm -hmm. It's like a, a, a canvas that you can wrap onto things, and that's how projection mapping works, whereas pixels are points in space where content flows through those pixels. 
and you can arrange those. If you would do it that way. I mean, you can also arrange your LEDs to do various surfaces. Yep. You know, and, and, and so, and just as projection mapping can go, can go into three dimensions when you have like a Gothic cathedral. Yeah. Um, then you can also, you know, you can also have 2D in LED. So I guess I don't see much of a, I don't see a bright line qualitatively between projection mapping and LEDs. It's just, it's just a different way of getting the light there. It is. And it's a different way of thinking about it. Um, but traditionally, almost all of the, the, the content creation packages that are available um, for mapping are geared towards projection, which is great. That's the world I came from. You know, I used to do concert touring and that was my job was to do the projection mapping systems and manage those computer systems. Um, but it's very frustrating at the same time how, you know, the, up until very recently, the only system that you could do real pixel mapping with was Madrix. I mean, you can do it with other other packages, but not volumetrically, mm -hmm. not like a true three-dimensional environment. And all of the new media servers that are coming out right now, uh, D3 is not a new media server, but it's definitely the, the most prominent. D3 is what they use on all the big concert touring shows. Um, and that is a prime example of a 3D environment used to map, used to projection map. It doesn't support pixel mapping, not individual pixel mapping. Correct me if I'm wrong. I might be wrong about that. Mm -hmm, but from mm -hmm. what I understand, D3 is not an ideal platform to do pixel mapping with. Right. Yeah, there's also the uh, software package that Mark Slee put out um, and, uh, you know, it, it open source. So the, I just one met with him. the one that's used by Symmetry Labs a lot. I just met with him. Actually, so Symmetry Labs doesn't use his package anymore, but they started Mm -hmm. with with his his software and it's interesting because it's based in processing and it's a java application mm -hmm. which i thought was was really interesting choice in uh in development environments to do you know, it. i mean yeah it, processors have gotten so fast that you can write things in java and have it work yeah and it's it's such a small amount of data you're outputting because he's doing mm -hmm. pixel mapping it's right. not a huge number of pixels um He's a very cool guy. He's a very interesting yeah. character. I definitely want to have him on this podcast at some yeah. point and just jam with him and talk about what he's doing because it's it's very unique. But um, yeah, Symmetry Labs, man. It's crazy, crazy times. Crazy times for them. Crazy times for Obscura. It's a... Uh, the industry is changing. Uh, I think you know things that I don't. Why is it crazy times for anybody? Um, I don't even know exact. I don't want to get into it with uh, with Symmetry Labs because there's a lot of um, kind of like personal drama mm -hmm. happening around Alex that I don't really know about firsthand. I've just heard and I'm, I don't feel comfortable like right, diving right. in there. But I know that the company is going through big changes. I know that there's a lot of people who are kind of ejecting from that, that group and going mm -hmm. in, in different directions. And the same thing with Obscura, which just leaves this environment that I think Digital Ambience is a very is much more a part of that environment than uh, 
than your your group. You seem to be much more focused on the con uh, the software end of things, developing your software platform, LED Labs. And I, I, I wish it was more pieces. about. I wish it was more about art. Uh, the software. It is about art pieces. It's about making a living as an artist. Really. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I spend most of my time doing, is, is negotiating contracts. <laughs> well, what I mean is, what I mean is, Symmetry Labs, right? Yeah. Obscura, Digital Ambience are, um, like, I would consider DA a design firm. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like a group of people. There is no like one. I actually find it more comfortable to to not be like Rob Pope, the artist. I, I find it much more comfortable to, to promote our work if I'm promoting like the we, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Digital Ambience did that. It wasn't Rob Pope. It was Digital Ambience, which is true. You know, it's like there's a whole bunch of artists involved in this this group. And I, yeah, I find it more comfortable. Um, Chris. Start seems like an artist. Like uh, that is what I'm trying to do. Yeah, that exactly. is what and, I'm trying well, to do. Well, you know, there's a lot of people. It, it, there's there are many people um, who that seems like it's a, it's a differentiator. There's a there's it's a it's a division between you know if if you're an individual artist, you kind of go in the fine art direction. Mm -hmm. Right. That's like a path that opens up naturally. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a firm, then you have to play a different game or slightly. Well, different you game. have a payroll. You, you need to go after the, the well-paying gigs. We also, you know, I find that most of most of the design, the new media design firms that I know of, they go after marketing gigs or like for us, we're very focused on architecture. We go after architectural gigs. Um, Whereas if you're an artist, if you're like a like an individual artist, then you can go after commissions. You can mm -hmm. go after you know city arts projects will are much more likely to hire um, an individual artist than, really? than a firm. Oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I, 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 I've uh, I've had that's been a tough nut for me to crack. It is um, for everybody. I, I have been I've been applying to those um, RFQs and RFPs now for about a year and a half, and I made it I made it into the finals for one of them. Right, you know. <laughs> It's, it's, and I haven't haven't gotten a single one. And, well, and basically, what I've in talk, I've talked with people on both ends of that. I've talked with people in the public entities that you know submit you know submit those things, and they it's unfortunately it's chicken and the egg. They want an artist who's already done it. They want an artist who's already handled the budget that they're talking about, has already done a similar project, and it's like, gee, you're going to be eating your tail if you don't give new artists a chance. Well, that's but, because but, but nobody wants to give the artist who's never done it a chance. I think that's true among corporate gigs and and art commission gigs. I think that's I, just I, in general. If somebody's going to give you a huge chunk of money, they want to see something on your portfolio that says, yeah. I've dealt with a similarly sized chunk of money. I am finding that the corporate world is much more willing to trust me simply on the strength of my pieces. Whereas when I do RFQs and RFPs, it seems like they're interested in me having done a project no matter how it looked. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as long as I did that project successfully before, then they're fine with it. And that's discouraging. Well, there's definitely that a different set of... Uh, of uh, motivations for both those two groups. If you look at the, the motivations and if you also look at the structure, an art commission is that it's a commission and there's many people on it and those people tend to be fine artists. So they're looking for the personality, right? They're looking for a, a personality. They don't want like a, like a, a firm, because it's not it's that's that breaks I the know, paradigm. I, I, I the, the first RF 
pee that I did was this um, big steel ball up in um, uh, uh, Bellingham, Washington. It used to store acid, 30-foot diameter steel ball, and they were submit, you know, submitting uh, proposals to do something with it. I, of course, submitted something with LEDs. The company that got it was a design firm. You know, uh, mm. I mean, it, it seems to me that they, they look, if I was a city, or if I was a corporation, I might feel comfort knowing that there was not just one person. Hands. Sorry, oh, it's okay. I, 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 I would feel comfort um, knowing that there was not just one person handling this, but there was a whole team in case that one person yeah. got sick. Yeah, right? of course. So I, I can see, you know, I can see why these entities only want to hire somebody who's done it before. I can see why they might want a team rather than uh, an individual. I, just because of the way I work, am an individual. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't have that experience yet, so I'm, I'm working on it. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not pessimistic. Maybe it's I, just I, the cities that we've been dealing with. We've been dealing with the San Francisco Arts Commission. Obviously, oh, no, I've been, I've been dealing with them all across the country. And for, for, for example, like four of them in Charlotte in the last four years. Oh, wow. And I even have contacts in that in, in that organization within Charlotte. And, uh, you know, uh, and they're like, uh, yeah, you don't have their experience. So that's why we didn't pick you. Sorry. You don't have the, you don't have the experience. I don't have the experience. <laughs> I don't have the experience handling a $150,000 civic contract. I don't have experience working with the city government. I mean, that's, they, they even say it in the RFQs. They want to see your in your resume, they want to see evidence that you simply have gone through the motions of creating a piece in this kind of context, no matter what it ended up looking like, right? In other words, it doesn't matter what it really looks like in, look, I'm sure the people who grant these things care what it looks like, but an awful lot of the requirements they're putting out there are going to exclude an awful lot of people, people who are brilliant artists and have a lot you know, poorer resume than me. I have a decent resume now, you know, but I still can't get someone to take a chance on me doing a civic project. Well, you I know? can tell you that we've done a couple um, civic art projects now, and it's a red tape nightmare. I mean, yeah. that is the, you can understand why, because they, they're inside that machine. They mm -hmm. see it, they're like, oh man, you know, like when we give you this money, you, it's, you're almost just as likely you to fail. You better be ready for this. Well, you, you're just as likely to fail by tripping over the red tape than you are to fail by tripping over technical details of your project. Right. And I think that they see that. They've probably seen that a lot, and it's probably their heads on the line if they bring an artist in who can't handle the 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 amount of bullshit that that you have to right. you have to deal with. Right. Well, maybe I should just be grateful for what I have. No, you should keep yeah. going after yeah. it because I think yeah. you're much more likely than we are to, to make to make serious inroads in that. Look at uh, who's the guy who did the Bay Bridge? Leo Villarreal. Yeah. Look at him, man. He's all over the place. He is crushing it as he should be. And he is a individual fine artist. Mm -hmm. Just because you're an individual doesn't mean you can't have a team behind you. It just means that instead of being a brand right mm -hmm. instead of being like some abstract entity like for us it's digital ambience right but for you it's christopher and just like for leo it's he is the brand and that seems to resonate in my mind that seems to resonate more with the arts commissions right. because i think that they're used to dealing with artists 
as brands in and of themselves. There was a um, an RFQ for um, a couple of years ago for well probably a year and a half ago for Treasure Island. You know, there's lots of development going on on Treasure that, Island, yeah. and you know, there's going to be this park on the top of the hill, and there's going to be some stuff on down down the harbor, and there's going to be some other stuff. And they went out of their way in the RFQ to mention that they, you know, that, that they wanted to try and give unknown artists a shot, and they really wanted local artists, and they chose international artists that like not not a single one lived here. Yeah, you know, and it's just like what. Well, that's why. So we applied for the Mutech Festival. You know, when Mutech came to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we were applying for uh, the piece that we submitted wasn't actually well suited. Now that I've seen Mutech in San Francisco once, mm-hmm. the piece that we submitted wouldn't have fit very well anyway. But they didn't choose any San Francisco artists really. They brought everybody in. It's a lot of Germans, a lot of people from the UK, um, people from Chicago, New York. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people from San Francisco. And maybe that's because the San Francisco scene is uh, is lacking. But All right. Well, one idea I've had um, for a long time is that the, um, the lights on the Bay Bridge um, is perhaps to be thought of as a medium rather than a finished piece. <laughs> yeah, but right? the thing and, is, is that and, that content is so iconic now at this point. Well, no, but I mean, but that would, well, <laughs> I would think that the general public would really enjoy having it get shaken up. And for so for one month, have, you know, artist, Joe the artist do it. And then the next month, uh, you know, Becky the artist, you know, um, and, and have it cycle through a whole bunch of uh, new new tech artists. Yeah. You, you know, and, and I, I think, I think a- that would be a great thing. And, you know, the, the, the bridge, though, the idea of putting the lights on the bridge is definitely, you, you know, uh, Ben Davis and Leo Villarreal, you know, have credit for that. They didn't build a bridge. The bridge is a public entity. The, the bridge is a public facility. It makes sense that perhaps that should go and, be, you know, be, be distributed around the public a bit. Yeah, I mean, I can totally see that point of view. I can also see the point of view that it is an integrated art piece made with a purpose and a look in mind. Now, I'm, you know, I think that it would be very cool to, to allow people to create content for the bridge. But I think that in the end, that's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, it's like an aesthetic choice. It's an artistic choice. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know even who you would approach to, to float that idea. Well, as far as I Probably Ben Davis, actually. Well, 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 my understanding is it's now publicly owned. Well, Ben Davis refinanced it and was able to raise the money to make it a semi-permanent piece. Mm -hmm. Semi-permanent being like he got 10 years worth of funding. Something like that. Right. But I think that they part of they did. I think that that funding was required by Caltrans to keep it up. They wanted there to be a fund for the ongoing maintenance. And that's what he funded. That's what Ben Davis funded. I think that Caltrans now owns it. Interesting. So, um, but I don't know that for a fact. I think that's the case. I think that what they, I remember reading along the word donate in the concepts of that, which was, no, we want to give it to the city or give it to Caltrans or whoever's in charge and, and have it be an ongoing thing. Man, we're going to have to look that up. Yeah. <laughs> I can see people getting real pissed about this conversation. Yeah. I mean, but you know, it's like, you know, it, it's been years now. It's been a totally Leo Villarreal piece. And as I said, 
Leo and Ben Davis, they were they deserve a lot of credit for you know laying over the barbed wire. Imagine all the regulatory hurdles they went through. I, oh my God! I can. Imagine all the the boring meetings they had to go to. I totally understand that. But it's been a lot of years now. I think it'd be pretty neat to uh, spread it around. Not to the benefit of me and other artists, but to the benefit of the Bay Area, you know, to, to put some variety out there. I've seen some, I've definitely seen some, uh, some visual art that I would not appreciate have strobing through my, my bedroom windows if I lived in the city. Yeah. So, you know, don't put that there. I mean, you know, you can, you can curate it. <laughs> you'd you have know, to. You can I mean, curate God, it. You'd have you know, to. you can, you can, and you can make it really super duper clear that, Hey, you know, this is the mood we're going for. And if people don't honor that, you pull the plug on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I think that would be a neat idea. I mean, just as Burning Man is this wonderful canvas for thousands of people to try on the word artist on themselves. I think that the I think the Bay Lights could be a great canvas for an awful lot of people as I well. I like your concept. I think it would be hard to make that fly. But I like it. I think that would be really cool. It'd be worth an experiment. I'm not to, saying to it's easy it to make it fly. I'm saying that conceptually it makes sense. And 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 I think in I think in the name of fairness it makes sense too. It is a publicly created entity. Sure. You know, like, like you know, uh, Mark Benioff can have whatever he wants on the Salesforce Tower because, he, you know, he, he built the building, right? Well, he, you know, no private entity built the Bay Bridge. That was built with public funds. It should be a publicly, you know, utilized entity. Sure. What do you think about that piece on top of the Salesforce Tower? <sighs> well, I don't want to, you know... Oh, hurt, hurt anyone's feelings, no, but uh, everybody I, I, has I, a right to an I opinion. I find it, I find it uh, uh, uninspiring. Um, I, I find it very, very just kind of you know blobs of color moving around on, well, on a thing. very, very, very diffused you know kind of uh, context. I, I'm not seeing much that's interesting. I like the concept as a as a media as a as a canvas but i think that i agree with you i was what, well what is the concept i the don't concept is uh, a diffused led right. display surface and that's always been jim campbell's thing you know i mean he if you look at i've i've you know looked him up right there he, he has a piece in a airport somewhere which is a whole like a hundred foot line of diffused panels overhead in a corridor and he has silhouettes of people swimming that's see i think that's very see, inspired actually. i know well i think that's a brilliant piece. but i think I that love the that. salesforce tower is the content that they display on it is not very inspiring it's it's kind of well, like you said block the, content well that's what i said yeah but it's got so much potential like if it was me oh. i would do some like a generative piece on that right. you know well, do some some really cool generative content i know well so would i and that's why if, i love the bay bridge and if uh you know and if you know mark benioff is listening to us here uh hey you 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 can you can find my contact info in this and you can find rob's too <laughs> uh you know i mean we, we would we would love to do that and 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 actually I, I've never met the guy, but I think that of all the people out there, he would be um, he would be interested in getting more artists involved. Well, I think that you know whether it's that or something else. Honestly, 
I'm very into the idea of pushing forward and creating new. I'm into the the the, the generation, the creation of cool canvases, right. is where yeah. my personal interest lies. You know, I, it would be cool to make content for that thing, but in the end, it's just a, it's a thing that already exists. And right, I'm but the thing is, content. it's it's not often that a multi-million dollar uh, canvas on top of a god knows how many story tall tower. You know, th- those don't pop up very often. I mean, they do in Hong Kong, but they don't here. I was just going to say, man, there's, I think uh, the the term is architainment, and it's kind of blowing up right now. Not in the United States, but probably it everywhere else. It is, though. It's blowing really? up everywhere. Yeah, it is. Really? I mean, as an industry, it's it's coming into its own, and it's, mm-hmm. it's one part architectural lighting design. It's one part theatrical design mm-hmm. using the tools of the stage um it's using sensors um it's it's integrating a whole lot of disparate uh, industries and bringing those tools into like a whole new practice mm-hmm. and we're all playing in that practice right now you know you are i am obscura is was mm-hmm. um we just come at it from different angles. Right. You know? I love to have new canvases, but as I said, they're, you know, big ones like that don't come on very, come along very often. And you know, you know, hell, I'm, I keep making them, you know, I, I, I'm making canvases all the time. Yeah. I love your, I love your pieces, man. They're so cool. They're very kinetic. And that's something, you know, uh, you know, white void out of no. Berlin, you should no. look them up. They're, they're very cool. It's a, they do kinetic light sculpture and, uh, but it's, oh, well, it's not persistent. It's not persistence of vision. It's, um, they have, a they have software that they've written that controls motors mm-hmm. and they'll take, um, lighting fixtures and put them on an array of motors. So they'll have like, you know, 50 by 20 motors. So hundreds of motors and they'll put like a pixel on the end of each motor and they'll create waveforms with those, those motors. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah. I've seen and that. And then they have a piece where they take, uh, they basically take the, the exact XYZ position of each fixture on the end of those motors and they hit that with a laser. So it's like a, like a, like a plastic orb on the end of each winch mm-hmm. and then they illuminate those orbs with a laser. So it, it's just the most crazy geometrical lighting yeah. performance that, yeah, brilliant. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm, it's funny. I, I don't dispute at all that you're saying that you see me as a, uh, a kinetic sculptor. I'm getting into that again, which is kind of funny because, you know, in 2000, I made spin crude technology, but basically I'm making the same, I'm making very similar pieces right now with much, much higher technology. But most of my pieces are not spinning. You know? that, that's, that's a really new thing. Yeah. I mean, just since we've really like known each other as artists. It's funny because I was trying to figure out how I know you, and I think it is through Rhythm Society. <laughs> I think it's actually through um, Lumen Labs. I, I was invited to a party here. Um, Our opening party. The, the opening party. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure we met then. Maybe. And then I, I, I actually got my first commission at that party or after Did you that really? party. That's how we got the jungle animals. Do you know that? Yeah, well, it was Garrett Camp. Yeah. Yeah. He, he hired me to make, you know, just rec- just straight up rectangular panels. That's right. And and I made those for him one year, and then you made the animal vehicles for him the next year. Yeah, yeah. 
Interesting guy. Interesting camp that Galactic Jungle is. What I liked about Galactic Jungle is it didn't look like a pay-to-play camp. It looked like just a bunch of kids in a, in a camp. Well, maybe not the year. The year, <laughs> the year I was there, it looked like just a normal bunch of normal people. You know, and then I, you know, found out later that, okay, yeah, there's like someone who's paid to cook and there's a couple of people paid to set up. And it definitely walks that fine line. Yeah, but but I like that. It's like, I like it that people can have it be, you know, can have the luxury they want to pay for, but not have it be ostentatious. You know, I I, I appreciate that. And Star Star Roadhouse is a great example of that as well. Never camp with them. I've always wanted to have... I've always wanted we'll, to have an we'll inside just, view. Well, just just go and say hello, right? Well, I, you know, I know, I know yeah. people who camp with them, too. So Yeah, so there you go. I mean, the year that I got to know them, there was a guy named Jamie Vida who made a couple of art cars for him. And, and, I, and I didn't work on those LEDs, but my technology ended up on them, so I was kind of involved. And, uh, and he took me, you know, he just showed me around, you know, amazing camp. What was really nice about it was that there was not one bit that was off limits. To just normal people. Yeah. Not one bit. That's cool. And they had set up an entire camp just for the Sherpas. Um, And then there was another big big lounge for the Sherpas. And then there was also a lounge for the guests. But you know what? The Sherpas preferred hanging out in the Sherpa camp, you know. And it was rattier, but it was just as comfortable. Yeah. And so it was just, it was, it was very, it was very nicely done. And I actually ran into uh, David Bonderman one year and I said, I just want to compliment you on doing this right. So having been part of a number of camps like that, I always find it a little bit, I think that the fundamental problem with camps that hire people to build and run said camps is that the people who come in to to work the camp right are fundamentally different personality types than the people who come to play um, without working at those same camps and I think that it creates this it creates the potential for a class system within a camp. Potential? It's absolutely a class. Well, it doesn't have to be because last year I camped with uh, with the sanctuary camp and it was it totally blew my mind, man. It was like everybody. It was like a big family and it was cool and and the patron was cool and he came out to Burning Man with us a week before burn helped us build that car and made us breakfast every morning like himself that's that's just awesome yeah he's a he's a very unique guy but to contrast that you know whatever that camp is that got banned this year and then the camp i feel like i understand that camp because i camped with a similar camp doing art cars previous years and it was uh it was very much this kind of weird like where the we're, we're your bosses and you are our employees and you will work for us and do what we say. And it's like, yes, they did hire us. And yes, they kind of felt like shitty people. Right. <laughs> you know, it was like, yeah, I would well, never want to camp well, with these that kids. Was, that, that, it, it became extremely clear that year of Caravansicle, uh, you know, the... The, the, the notorious, you know, bad, you know, pay to play camp um, that um, that when you have that context, all right, I'll, I'll use your word. The potential for setting up a class system is definitely there because not only do you have an upper class that doesn't lift a goddamn finger, um, you have an underclass which is there to work. Now, I, I'm pretty sure almost every camp 
has you know gives people days off and 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 nights off right but at least but it, but you you're, you're not free you're not there to do what you want you're there to earn money or at least break even and and surf the upper class and i think that is a fundamental problem with the uh, fundamental threat to the burning man culture and it's, well, it's so a departure from the, the the ethos of burning man well, the, radical the, self-reliance yeah, right? radical self-reliance among other things and it's I mean, so, that's why it tastes so bad oh yeah and and, and i'm really really glad that marion sent out that 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 message this year saying well we're really concerned about burning man culture but it's kind of like what took you so long? Yeah, that ship has sailed, what my friend. What took you so long? I don't, I, don't, I don't see a way back from that. Well, I honestly yeah. don't. Like, what are you going to do? Say, like, no more no more wealthy people can come to Burning Man? No. It's like, you can't do no, that. No, what they can do is this. What they've been doing is they've made it so that if you're willing to spend $1,200 per ticket, you can get as many tickets as you want as late as July, no questions asked. That's what existed up until and not including this year. That's so that's one of the things that Marion said they're ending. Um, you can still get these super expensive tickets, but they're only available in this very, very early window of time. It's probably over by now. Um, and uh, so they're making it so that you can't just get lots of tickets if you're willing to spend a lot of money. Why is that important? Well, in my opinion, I've never run one of these camps, but these these like $20,000 ahead camps. But I would I would think that if you were to if you were to charge some guy $20,000 ahead to be in this camp, you can't turn around and say to him, oh, by the way, you need to get a ticket. Sure. Right. So this business of selling high price tickets, no, no questions asked, no, no hassle at all, fundamentally created the pay to play camp industry. So therefore, now that they're not doing it, it's going to put stresses on all those camps. And I imagine a bunch of them are going to go out of business. Um, there are some camps, for example, Star Star Roadhouse and Frozen Oasis that definitely provide services. They're they're probably they probably got directed uh, tickets, um, but they're not going to be able to buy those $1,200 tickets anymore. So it's, it is going to be um, a, a little bit of a, what do you call it? You know, where some of the camps won't be around. Yeah. Um, the other thing that Burning Man has done. Well, that's to, good. To, Shake to, it up to, a little bit. I know. Totally. No, this is why the message that Marion sent out is not empty at all. Um, the other thing that they've been doing is they've been, they, they started off with this little tiny program called Outside Services because they were noticing that some camps were starting to bring in semis worth of, semi-trucks worth of stuff. And they said, you know what? It would be better if they went through a different gate and kind of had a different system. So they set it, started up this system and then of course once every every caterer who wants to make a burning man camp heard about it oh yeah there's outside services we don't need to you know we can have it be bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and so now they're trying to cap they're trying to cut back on outside services they're trying to make it be not such a big thing how they're doing that i'm not exactly sure uh so they have done things to facilitate the erosion of the Burning Man uh, ethos, and this year they may be starting to undo those things. Oh, we'll good keep for our fingers. Them. We'll keep our fingers crossed. Are you gonna go this year? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I've got I've got tickets. I've got an honorarium. I've got a camp. Basically, I've I've got myself in a situation where if I didn't go. I would have a lot of very upset friends. Say, man, that's the situation I don't want to be in. So it's a. I'm not going this year. I I can't I can't really complain to be in the situation. It's it's, it's it's very it's very fun to be able to provide a lot of people with um, a really good camp, a stable source of tickets. It's great. I think it's totally legit to. 
I think it's totally legit to, to, to be in that position. I think that for me, I am generally producing an art piece. So I have a lot of responsibility and that art piece is very seldom my own art piece. It's not on my shoulders alone. So for this year, for example, we're doing two art cars. I'm not going out to the Burning Man to see them to see them run, and I'm happy about that. I, I know you, you've told me that, and that's I'm great. Going, I'm that's going great. traveling this year. That's great. <laughs> I'll go back next year, man. Burning Man will probably be there. So probably, you know, I think I, I think it'll be fascinating if it isn't. You know, I mean, it, to, to see what happens. I I do not think that long term Burning Man has a chance of dying, um, even if for some reason this particular org you know, stops doing it. Somebody else will. It's an American it. institution. Yeah. Man. Somebody else, somebody else will start it. And it, that would it, be, that would also, that would have the potential for a lot of positivity too. It's like total fresh blood. You know? Well, if you look at culturally what's happening in the world, Burning Man is a huge factor in, in the cultural landscape of, of the world right now. And that's, it's, it's interesting. I don't even know if you can call it counterculture anymore. I mean, it's like, it's not mainstream, but yeah. it is a lot less countercultural than it was even oh, five yeah. to 10 years ago. Absolutely. So. And, and nothing, nothing makes that point better than the fact that when the Smithsonian Burning Man show opened, uh, they set attendance records in the first months. I don't know what they, I don't know how it was by the end of the show, but I mean, people all over, people, people visiting DC and people living in DC, they all wanted to go see it. And they, and people got inspired. People got inspired by the blank canvas thing. This is kind of, you know, relatively well-known story of a 92 year old woman who's like, you know, big time, you know, society matron, you know, lived her whole life in DC, quite wealthy got to so turned on by the show that she first had a, a, a LED outfit made. Oh, God. And then she ended up going out to Burning Man last year uh, with her with her kids at the age of 92. I, sure. I was told which camp she was, and, and, and I knew told that she was she was in a camp that, it was a pay-to-play camp, but their shtick was we serve Bloody Marys. So she was serving Bloody Marys one morning, and I and I talked with her a little bit, and, and it was great. That's and, cool. And, it's and, always and, nice to see and, people's and mind got, blown. Right. It was, she got her mind blown, and she, uh, she, she, she's bringing her energy to Burning Man now. Will she go back again? Who knows? Um, her kids were complaining about how much the camp cost, so uh, they, they might not do that again. Um, I just yesterday, or was it this morning? Either yesterday or this morning, I uh, got an email from a guy named David Brown, who is the curator of the Smithsonian show in Cincinnati. They set attendance records yeah. on their opening night in Cincinnati. Yeah. Cincinnati is a very straight place, and they set attendance records. Well, that's the thing. I don't think there is any area or any city in the country that doesn't have some kind of Burning Man community. I don't. I th I've been all over the place when I was touring, and I was always able to find burners in every city. And this was eight years ago. Wow. Yeah. I have a friend who's on the uh, board of the Modern Art Museum in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And she was telling me that they were really, uh, that the people on the board are like super psyched that she's a big time Burning Man participant and she works on my, my, my pieces. Yeah. And I'm like, really? They, they, they value that. That's great. That's fantastic. That's cool, man. Yeah. Do you want to take a, like a five, um, What's what's your time like? Do you gotta get out of here? I, or? I I kind of feel like we just kind of came to a, a little conclusion. Okay, cool. You know, yeah. and and I'd like to go back home to my family if that's all right with you. Yeah, that's totally. I totally man. enjoyed it, but I feel like I kind of talked myself out. 
Cool. Well, I'm glad you came on. This has been fun. Yeah. Well, it certainly got far afield from LEDs. No, and I mean stuff, that's what this is all yeah, about. Yeah. I mean, this is great because I feel like we dove deep into Burning Man and and the cultural landscape of Burning Man where it is yeah. right now. And that's that's cool. Yeah, and hopefully it didn't offend anyone. Yeah, um, whatever. <laughs> here's an idea. I'd love to do this again anytime you want. Um, somehow I got the impression that you were going to, it wasn't going to be just me. It was going to be like a group of people. Oh no, I, I've only done one-on-ones. Right. I think it would be actually fun to have three or more with more beer. Gonna have to get, with I'm more gonna beer, have to get more cooler, microphones. A little cooler, right. <laughs> but just kind of like, you know, but have it be, you know, because there's something about more than two where someone says, oh yeah, 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 that reminds me of this. And oh, then, I yeah. know, man. Yeah. It's hard, from an editing standpoint, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So everybody's talking over everybody and it's a nightmare to edit, but. But that might be fun though. It might be. Might be, might be fun. To do anyway, that. I'm happy to do this again anytime and if you want, especially if you want to do a little group. Cool. I'm into it, man. Thanks again. All right. Thank you.